Hi, and welcome to a very special episode of Sepad Pod, bringing together a number of scholars from across the world to discuss a really important topic that we've been working on quite a bit in, in recent months. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by four very special guests. First up, we have Professor John Nagel, who is a professor of sociology at Queen's University, Belfast. We're also joined by his colleague, Drew Mikhail, a research fellow also at Queen's University, Belfast. We're joined by Anne Kirsten Rohn, aka soon to be defending her PhD dissertation from Aarhus University in the Political Science Department and a fellow of CEPAD. And last but by no means least is our very own Ibrahim Halawi, a present teaching fellow at Royal Holloway University in International Relations and also fellow of CEPAD. Everybody, thank you so much for joining us today. And what we're going to be doing is reflecting on power sharing and the emergence of a particular type of movement slash party. Those movements, parties fall broadly under the banner of anti or non-sectarian movements. Some might call them post-sectarian movements, trans-sectarian movements, of desectarianizing currents. And if we look at what's happened in recent weeks, we've seen elections in Lebanon and in Northern Ireland, where such movements and groups have begun to, to take quite a big foothold in the political landscape. So we thought it was a good chance to reflect on what's happening in these two states. So, John, Ibrahim, Drew, AK, thank you so much for joining us. Let's begin just by getting a little bit of, of context with, um, with these two states before we, we get into the, the broader currents. Ibrahim, I'll start with you, please. Um, just tell us a little bit about the Lebanese context, uh, the elections that took place, and the emergence of the, the, the anti-post, non-trans, desectarianizing block, if you will, if you want to even call it a block, that is. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me. Um, so in brief, Lebanon now has a new parliament. Um, it's the first parliament to be elected after the October uprising and also after um, one of the largest destruction of wealth per capita in modern history. Um, um, but much like the French parliamentary outcomes, everyone has claimed victory. Um, but in essence, 13 oppositional MPs, um, and this is what um, interests us today, have made it to parliament under the broad slogan of political change. These 13 oppositional MPs come from different political and protest movements, um, they did not necessarily um, fight the same campaign during the elections, but now that they made it through, they're trying as much as they can um, to consolidate their political program and fight in parliament in a coordinated manner. Having said that, the overall picture is the same consociational bickering persists, despite the fact that there are three key looming problems or issues. The first one is, of course, the deep financial crisis, which continues to be largely managed by self-serving financial elites that were delegated by the sectarian political class to allocate losses in a way that protects the private wealth uh, accumulated by the financial political elite during the, the, the past period. This financial crisis, of course, overlaps with a global crisis, um, food and energy in particular, which is deepening the problem. Hence, um, um, the implications of the mismanagement of the financial crisis has been, for, to an extent, irreversible on, on society. The second issue is the uncertainty that looms regarding the presidential elections, um, which is meant to follow in the next two months, um, if and probably will. Um, the, the parliament failed to elect a new president. This means that we're heading into a, a deep um, political stalemate that also has implications on the economy and on stability. And lastly, the, uh, the last looming issue is the maritime border that talks with Israel being um, mediated by the United States. On one hand, this is not pressing because it's not like we're going to get gas and oil suddenly and solve the financial crisis. However, this has a huge geopolitical and political significance in terms of um, relations with the U.S., but also, more importantly, the questions of security and compromise with Israel, in which some of the political elite in Lebanon might be interested in conceding to as a way to protect um, their power in the midst of these deep political crises. Great. So uh, a complex political environment there. And uh, 
no sign of that complexity abating anytime soon. Um, let's compare that then to, to Northern Ireland, Drew, please. Um, give us a bit of, of context there. Um, obviously, there's a, there's a lot going on as of late as well. There is, and there's a lot of parallels with Lebanon in particular, of course. Um, I wouldn't just say that as a half-Lebanese Northern Irish boy, but just uh, who's, who happens to study power sharing. But recently we have seen the largest uh, block of, in the Northern Ireland, consociational parlance of others, those who are not attached to the main two ethno-nationalist identities of unionist and uh, nationalist. Um, with the Alliance Party securing uh, the third most votes in the in the um, the National Assembly, what that brings, however, is that in the background for these elections and the United Kingdom in general, of course, for the last uh, since 2016, has been the issue of Brexit, and which in which the DUP for the first time. Um, has not, well, not for the first time it hasn't secured its most votes, but for the first time has overseen the fact that a Northern Ireland Assembly has not seen uh, the largest bloc being uh, belonging to a unionist party, um, with uh, Sinn Féin as a nationalist Republican party winning the most amount of votes. DUP has decided that they are going to hold up the power sharing um, arrangement and the formation of a cabinet without electing a deputy uh, Speaker of the House or Deputy First Minister and Minister. Um, so in a lot of ways, like Lebanon, we are waiting for an executive formation that is uh, precisely, we're in our in our, our very common consociational holding pattern, both in Lebanon and in Northern Ireland. But unfortunately, you know, we have the uh, the larger issue of Brexit over constantly overarching the uh, and colouring Northern Ireland's politics, particularly from the DUP's stated um stated uh, or extensive reasons for holding out is that a resolution to the Northern Ireland protocol must be must be arranged. The Northern Ireland protocol is the um, the effective bargain that has made the island of Ireland still be able to one half with the uh, the Republic of Ireland being maintaining its EU status and Northern Ireland being able to have, be able to ship goods across the uh, across the, the border the, the non-hard border. For the for the DUP, they see this as um, they claim that it's an economic issue for Northern Ireland, although that, that can be contested. But the reality that holds up that creates delays in goods coming from um, the greater or the uh, sort of mainland UK. However, the greater sort of issue around that is one of an ethnic identity that it separates Northern Ireland or pushes it further away from its uh, from from Britain. And uh, without that being addressed or without the, the protocol being addressed to the satisfaction of the DUP, we're going to remain in stalemate for our power sharing agreement in the coming months. Great, thank you. And well done. You managed 90 seconds without mentioning Brexit, which is probably a record for these types of discussions. So um, well done. Very proud. John, someone else who's in Belfast and someone else who's from Belfast and with a keen interest in, in Lebanon, what do you think the main similarities are then between these two um, political power sharing agreements and sort of socio-political context in which power sharing plays out in these two states? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because, I mean, obviously both Northern Ireland and Lebanon are examples of post-war power sharing systems which in different ways are meant to sort of accommodate the main ethno-national or ethno-sectarian group-based kind of identities. However, at the same time, you know, both kind of power sharing systems do this very differently. Lebanon is a classic example of what's called like a corporate power sharing system where, you know, seats and positions are reserved, you know, before elections. Whereas Northern Ireland is seen as an example of a liberal type of uh, power sharing agreement, which means that you know those seats or positions are automatically reserved for the main ethno-national groups. So you know theoretically, Northern Ireland should have more opportunities for non-sectarian groups to sort of mobilise, and you know Northern Ireland is often sort of proclaimed as uh, you know a great example of the possibilities of liberal sort of power sharing. Um, I'm a little more, bit more kind of sceptical of a sort of corporate liberal sort of division in terms of explaining non-sectarian mobilisation in the two different societies. 
I think, you know, if we're looking at Lebanon, we have to look at the extra institutional barriers for non-sectarian opposition movements to kind of mobilize. And, you know, Lebanon is actually classified as a society or state, unfortunately, which is partly unfree. It has like a mixture of sort of liberal sort of democracy, electoral kind of systems, but at the same time, they're sort of authoritarian sort of practices going on at the same time. And this is extremely kind of delimiting, you know, the potential of non-sectarian movements to kind of mobilize. So it's not just about kind of power sharing, it's also about how the main ethno-sectarian parties interfere in the electoral kind of cycle, you know, they use kind of patronage networks, survival, they use kind of corruption as well as a process to kind of support their own sort of political base. They have their own sort of media networks. And, you know, it's not just about sort of power sharing, it's also about these sort of authoritarian sort of measures which ethno-sectarian parties and elites use to clamp down opposition parties. And, you know, very clearly in terms of protest cycles in Lebanon over the last few years, um, you you know, the ethno-sectarian factions have done all they can to make sure that opposition parties aren't able to kind of flourish, whether it's using kind of violence, coercion, whether it's closing down the kind of space for independent media, or whether it's, you know, just in terms of, you you know, using rhetoric and kind of discourse to sort of demobilize and delegitimize non-sectarian movements. So, you know, to kind of reiterate here, I think we put too much emphasis on consociationalism and institutional rules. Actually, what's more important is to look at, you know, how ethno-sectarian parties um, limit the space for non-sectarian opposition parties to kind of flourish. And Lebanon is a really good example of this. That's a really interesting point. Um, thanks for that, John. Just before coming to you, AK, um, to what extent is Northern Ireland a really good example of of that? Moving beyond the sort of the the factionalism in the power sharing agreement and efforts by parties like the DUP, Sinn Féin, to try and prevent that anti-sectarian bloc from emerging. John, Drew, either one of you. Sorry, I thought you said the AK. I, I think that, that I mean, I'll, I'll try and put on my broad sort of consociational hat, and I think that, you know, maybe others can jump in on this, that it serves the established political parties that have been, that have that base their political capital and their currency on the central cleavages, the divides in, uh, in the society to, to foster their own constituencies. And I think that, you know, what's interesting is that um, there has to be a, there's a mindfulness of, of, of how it's done in Northern Ireland, or at least, at least from the from Sinn Féin's point of view, if we look at sorry to mention the big B word again uh, with Brexit, we saw this um, this play out in particular. I think that you know what has been very notable about Sinn Féin's rise to power, effectively to the to the largest power in Northern Ireland, is that whilst its its stated ambitions of unifying the entire island are you know without question, I think that. Um, there has been certainly there's been a mindful sort of practice of of, of being able to uh, to not completely alienate alienate all those arguments, right? So I think that um, whereas as John sort of articulated in Lebanon, there can be quite a hostile nature towards anti-sectarian parties or or, or post-sectarian parties. We don't see perhaps the same to the same extent in in Northern Ireland. Um, in fact, you know, a lot of my work revolves around working with um, civil society organizations on, who operate or on, on a non-sectarian basis. And what you see is that there's usually like a public glad handing to the, these spaces. So whether it's working with newcomers, migrants, asylum seekers, refugees, the DUP, and 
and and Sinn Féin will be very keen to uh, have their photo ops with non-sectarian aligned issues. However, what's been very clear is that those issues have also been used as a as a kickball between the two the two major polls, right, and between the two major parties to try and co-opt some civil society issues to bring it under the broad rubric of uh, of their political domain. And this is the way Sinn Féin has often, um, in effect. Uh, you know, created an ethno dominance, their ethno dominance over issues like human rights, uh, over issues around the LGBTQIA agenda in Northern Ireland by being there, by being supportive of rights, um, on, you know, despite the fact that major leaders and intellectuals of the party were. <clears throat> You know, ostensibly very Catholic in their, you know, sort of their, you know, their political and social identity have supported abortion rights. So uh, you see these issues often being co-opted in Northern Ireland towards these ethno-national parties. And most of the time in the DUP's case, against some of those issues like civil marriage, like abortion, there has been a pushback by the DUP. So oftentimes that we see um, how these issues get co-opted or or become a, a site of opposition depending on the positionality of the party themselves. Great, thanks. AK, let's come to you. Um, your work does some really fascinating stuff with regard to protest and that's fascinating conceptually and empirically. So I wonder, can you do two things for us, please? Can you first of all just tell us what on earth is the difference between a de-sectarianizing current, post-sectarianism, anti-sectarianism, non-sectarian, etc., etc.? What are we talking about there? Well, first of all, it is, it is hard to define. And I think we should, first of all, distinguish between the debate that's going on in, in Lebanon, uh, for my sake, where the different independent candidates that have just been elected to parliament are actually quite in disagreement about what it means to be against the securing system and also question uh, sometimes each other's uh, approach against sectarianism. So there's an empirical debate going on between activists um, in Lebanon. Um, as for the more scientific debate, um, of course, uh, we, we need to have some sort of, of definition uh, that can tell us what is anti-sectarianism, what is sectarianization. So in my own work, uh, I use the term anti-sectarian uh, for, for various different reasons. Um, what I refer to when I say anti-sectarianism is a sort of political movement or civic movement that rallies people around uh, shared grievances, shared issues across different uh, sectarian identities, or at least open uh, to having members from, from different sects. They don't necessarily have to be explicitly calling for a change in the consultational system. They can also indirectly uh, challenge the system by just mobilizing against the leaders that, um, that ensure that the system remains in place. What has to be there is that there has to be an intention to challenge sectarianism, to challenge the instrumentalized views of sectarian identities in politics. So when, whenever there's a movement that has this core ambition to challenge the sectarianization um, of, of political life, then we're talking about an, an anti-sectarian movement. And then again, you can distinguish between more or less radical uh, versions of these anti-sectarian actors. And it's it's clear when you when you look at the protest movement in Lebanon that started in October 2019, you also see a lot of different varieties of anti-sectarian claims. You have Actors that are, as, as I know John has been writing about, very intersectional in their thinking. Uh, they are taking on a range of progressive political issues as well, uh, besides being against uh, the, the consociational system and the very fact that one's political identity depends on it, the person's sect. They're also against discrimination uh, of refugees, of sexual minorities. So you have that, that radical um, kind of often leftist flank. And then you have uh, activists who say, yes, we do want to reduce the political significance, uh, um, um, the, the political importance of sex, but we also believe this cannot be done overnight. And that's why we need to actually collaborate uh, with political actors that are, to some extent, holding on to more sectarian views. So those are the, the, 
kind of the, the ends of, of the, the two different ends of the continuum, um, which makes it difficult to say ultimately where does the line go between what's anti-sectarian and what's sectarian. Sometimes that line is very blurred and there is definitely a gray zone of actors and statements and approaches that are really difficult um, to identify as either or, um, which is also why we have to be careful with, with using the two labels. Thanks for that, AK. Um, the influence of, of a Danish scholar by the name of Morten Valbjorn is clear in your categorization of all of these things. I wonder if you've come across them. Um, Ibrahim, this, um, this emergence of these protest um, parliamentarians, if we want to call them that, have been, they've been described as a block. They've been described as coming together through a shared desire to facilitate change. But they're very, very different from the alliance party that Drew and John have been referring to in Northern Ireland. Tell us a little bit about what unites these folks and conversely, what, what divides them, please? Yeah, I think it's a good contrast with the Northern Ireland example, precisely because these new MPs, uh, as I mentioned, 13 of them, well, could be 14, could be 10, depending, sometimes they, they come and go, these independents, uh, but in, in general, around 13 MPs out of 128 seats, they did not emerge out of the same political movement or same political organization. And therefore, once they made it to the parliament, that's when they started actually negotiating uh, the legendas. So I think the reason why they want to present themselves as a bloc is not because they have the same political agenda, even on key issues, which I can come back to later, but simply because they cannot not be a bloc. If they end up presenting themselves as individuals, they would be easily sort of diluted or co-opted by the polarization that is currently at its peak in the parliament over the questions of like Hezbollah's weapons and things like that. So in that sense, they're only a block because they cannot not be a block. And you can see that from their performances. They contradict each other, they don't have a clear agenda together. The second thing is, in terms of the difference between um, this example and Northern Ireland, is, is that they don't have a clear theory of change. So they don't have a vision or an alternative form of the state in Lebanon. And this is what also AK uh, sort of conceptualized. They disagree on what kind of change they want. And it gets even harder to unpack this when you find yourself in a parliament that is strictly designed and run by sectarian blocs. And therefore, you're, you're stuck in a consociation arrangement in which some of you are saying something radical about it and others are trying to be more incremental and pragmatic. So in that sense, there will be, I think, eminently a division between them. But now they're trying to find their feet in a minefield of sectarian politics and therefore they are trying to stay together simply for the sake of survival. That really is quite the minefield. Um, John, compare that for us please with, with Alliance. Just um, set out how this this block that isn't a block but is a block because only because it can't be a block, if I've got that right, compares with what is a very clear party in Northern Irish politics, please. Sure. Uh, so the Alliance Party has been around for over 40 years. Um, they are a centrist party, but definitely are not radical. You couldn't quite classify them as being socialist or left-wing, or they don't have any sort of design to sort of overthrow the consociational sort of framework. They are a middle-of-the-road liberal party, and we're still kind of middle of the road, but the kind of joke is that we're always at risk of being run over. Um, but the, the great kind of success that sort of the Alliance Party is is longevity. You know, it's been around for sort of 45 years. They have this kind of experience of running in election sort of campaigns. They've always kind of positioned themselves as sort of centrist, middle of the road. Um, you know, they've never espoused sort of violence or been connected to paramilitary sort of organizations. In fact, you know, the opposite, they've always articulated their sort of non-sectarian sort of peaceful sort of politics. So, you know, they've had this sort of momentum of kind of building up 
um, you know, sort of legitimacy within the Northern Irish system. But, you know, in a sort of wider kind of context, you know, Northern Ireland is this society which is kind of moving away from being dual cleavage, ethno-nationalist. You know, it's not just a society which is divided between nationalists and unionists anymore. You know, uh, surveys, and I should big up a big survey, which is at the School of Social Sciences here at Queen's University, Belfast, Northern Ireland Life and Time Survey, which has been conducted for sort of 25 years, is showing that there's this sort of increasing number of people in Northern Ireland who define themselves as neither Irish nationalist or UK unionists, you know, they're much more sort of cosmopolitan in terms of how they view kind of identities for sort of non-binary. They, you know, are neither kind of committed to the UK union or committed towards kind of Irish unification. And, you know, this sort of non-sectarian population, if you want to call it that, you know, quite liberal in things such as kind of same-sex marriage, reproductive rights, um, you know, they were kind of very sort of pro-union you know, reasonably sort of young, sort of outward-looking, well-educated. So, I mean, what the United Party has been able to do really is sort of surf on the wave of this sort of growing sort of category of people here in Northern Ireland. So, you know, it's a very sort of timely moment for the United Party just because there is this conception of the population who, who no longer want to be associated with the mainstream sort of ethno-nationalist parties and, you know, quite bored of sort of stale sort of ethno-nationalist sort of politics here in Northern Ireland. And, you know, this has given the Alliance Party this sort of opportunity to sort of mobilise. But, you know, when it comes back to it, and I'm pretty convinced of this, you know, the difference between sort of the Alliance Party and non-sectarian politics in someone like Lebanon is, you know, the environment here in Northern Ireland is quite conducive in Lebanon. The whole point about the sort of system, and it's not just about sort of power sharing, but the authoritarian sort of leadership which oversees sort of power sharing in Lebanon. The whole point is to destroy opposition, to destroy diversity. Um, you know, um, the ethno sectarian sort of factions in Lebanon will do anything they can to maintain power. You know, we're not quite in that sort of situation here in Northern Ireland. So, as I keep saying, you know, this sort of environment for the United Party. Um, it's quite conducive, and it's not just about sort of power sharing, it's about growing trends in relationship to sort of identification and cosmopolitanism and, you know, class changes, all of these kind of types of things. So, you know, it's a much more kind of complex pattern than the boring old sort of power sharing explanations which people often come up with. Right, and that point about political context really seems to, to matter then, I guess, and that the context in which both formal political parties are emerging... Um, and of course the time in which they're emerging, but also the, the context in which protest movements are emerging differs dramatically. Um, AK, you were on the streets of Beirut at the time of the protests, and Ibrahim, I believe you were in and out of, of Beirut and Lebanon at those times as well. So perhaps you can both share... Sorry, Drew, I don't know if you were there. You may well have been there. Yeah, okay, great. Well, Perhaps amongst the three of you, you can share some of those things that were were driving the protesters with regard to their engagement with this political system. Um, AK, please. Well, lots of different things were driving the protesters. We're talking about a million people uh, who went to the streets. Uh, so obviously they were Just driven stop by... Just you, AK. Sorry. A million people were on the streets. Right? Million people Out of a population yeah. of, what's the current population? Well, of nobody really knows how many, how many people live in Lebanon. I would, I usually say 4.5 million Lebanese uh, yeah. individuals. It's clear that this was very much a Lebanese movement. This was Lebanese uh, citizens, Lebanese nationals going through the streets. There is a big population in Lebanon also consisting of Syrian refugees and Palestinian refugees. Those were less represented in the protest. That's that's important to also to also note. So it was Lebanese nationals primarily taking to the streets to demand social and economic justice in various different ways. Um, I would say one of the one of the interesting um, experiments you can say that happened uh, in the streets and activists also tend to call that an experiment was the different political discussions that took place in the streets. 
So these political discussions started out as very informal, literally groups sitting down on the ground, starting to take up uh, topics that would be of interest. That could be what would you like your state to look like in the future? What does a civic state actually mean? Is that something we want in replacement of the sectarian state? And gradually, these uh, discussions became more and more formalized, I would say. Um, protesters put up tents uh, to, um, in different areas of Lebanon, um, mainly in, in Beirut. There was uh, the Martha's Square and the Lafayette um, parking lot next door. It was filled with these tents. In Tripoli, you also had a whole um, like green uh, island uh, on, on one of the main roads leading to the uh, protest square, where you also had uh, different groups putting up tents. And, and there you actually saw protesters discussing what what is anti-sectarianism, what could anti-sectarianism look like? Because one of the dangers, I believe, of, of having uh, a, a political bloc or a political identity which is identified mainly as independent or anti-sectarian is that you might not succeed in adding content to this. It's very hard to actually to actually come up with with a positive definition uh, of anti-sectarianism, defining what it really is, what what political um, ideas, what solutions should be put into this box. So this was an, was a very interesting development that that happened in the protests, I would say, and also helped defining and helped teaching people and making them realize what is it actually that we demand. Uh, so we have to also remember that that big part of the Lebanese population don't have a very good political education. They're raised uh, within uh, those those political circles. Uh, their family members might be members of the same political party. They have heard one version of the story about how Lebanese politics works. So, so this was also a step towards making people um, express what it is uh, that, that actually made them go to the streets. Yeah, and that's really, really interesting. Just that point about the sheer number of people is huge. I guess... Um, People talked about the Bahraini uprisings in 2011 as one of the largest um, largest demonstrations in terms of population size, relative population size. And that was a couple of hundred thousand out of a population of 1.2, 1.3, 1.4. No one really knows. Um, million. But this, this um, protest dwarfs that, of course, quite significantly, which is... Hugely significant. Ibrahim, um, your reflections on that then? Not the random stuff yeah, I've just think... given you. The broader question. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to build on AK's uh, really uh, strong points and inspiring because I have like 10 questions now, um, which are not for this podcast, of course. Um, but two key things here. I think the first thing is the number that AK uh, mentioned, be it a million or less or whatever, it is a big number. And it is it is a reaffirmation that whoever was in the street is not one block represented, again, back to the world of block, maybe just better say, one group of people represented in specific political project. It was really different segments of society that were voicing, probably using the same slogan in many instances, but they had completely different imagination, first, what the problem is, and second, how to move forward. And therefore, this is really why the outcome of the uprising is all over the place, right? In terms of the direction and what kind of change do we want? But the second important point is, I think, and, and this is one of the differences with Northern Ireland, um, I think one of the problems that I saw in the streets is the absence of organization, which is a reflection of the difference between, let's say, the alliance as John has mentioned, has been there for 40 years, and therefore the kind of political organization that comes with it, and the healthy politics, I would like to think, um, and a healthy political participation that that invites, compared to the kind of politics that exists in Lebanon, which again, John accentuated, is heavily distorted by the authoritarian nature of sectarian political organization. And therefore, this moment, participating in the streets and the discussions that, that used to happen, it was the first meaningful, large-scale attempt at redefining politics. What kind of politics do we want? What is politics? And why organization matters? Um, so I don't want to lash out at the outcome because I think we have to give time to a society that has been heavily distorted by sectarian politics 
to redefine what politics means, to rethink about the importance of organization and agree or disagree, but at least do politics in a different way um, in the process of political change. That's really interesting, Ibrahim. Thank you. Um, John, your hand is raised. Yes, quickly, to kind of add to Ibrahim and AK, I think the numbers on the streets are extremely kind of significant because, you know, if you ever kind of talk to somebody who's a major figure within a national sectarian party, they will kind of dismiss non-sectarianism. They say it's irrelevant. You know, people want to identify with the main ethno-sectarian groups or whatever. So, you know, the fact that we actually have, you know, half a million, a million or whatever kind of people on the streets actually voicing opposition to sectarian politics and actually expressing a desire for some form of alternative is really sort of important because it does sort of counter that, you know, kind of thought, which is, Non-sectarianism is completely irrelevant. You know, it's just middle-class kids or whatever. You know, we can actually say no. You know, there's a million people on the streets. They come from all kind of different kind of sects, different kind of class groups. And you know, in Lebanon, what what was really kind of significant? It wasn't just kind of protests in Beirut. It was up in the north. It was in the south. It was all over. So yeah, this is really important about numbers and about the people who are taking part. And what's really interesting as well is we did a survey with SEPAD, the results of which, some of the results of which will be out soon, um, where we were asking people about all manner of things, including the protests and how they would identify themselves. And what was really interesting was the overwhelming majority said Lebanese all above all else. So there was this very clear reimagining of the role of the nation at a time of, of revolutionary change, which I guess isn't all that surprising, but... It's um, it's interesting to note. Drew, please. I've been wound up. I have to like just add a couple of points. I think that um, you know Ibrahim and AK have and, and John there have really, really sort of highlighted. Lebanon is no stranger to protests, okay, and it's no stranger to this amount of people on the streets as we saw in two thousand five um, in the independence in the Fatah or the Cedar Revolution as it became better known. However, what um, what a lot of Lebanese commentators have pointed out is that despite the fact that, and even before um, uh, uh, before the Thawra 2019 um, series of protests, we have seen self humiliation on the streets by um, uh, you know a former soldier at the at the fact that pensions were being taken away. We've seen teacher strikes. We have seen all manner of protests. But what John has just mentioned is the regionality of, or the sort of the widespread geographical region of those protests, but also. Uh, encounter to the You Stink movement, which was a very middle class um, a series of protests, we saw this along different classes of Lebanese. And I think that what's very, very important about Fada, and I definitely agree with Ibrahim's sort of overview, is the fact that it's messy, it's as a, as a natural consequence of these um, this coalescence of ideas that AK has like expressed and, and, and have seen how they've come together. Um, what was very important about Fauda is that there was a almost a recognition that um, intrasect or in, intra-ethnic recognition that our leaders are not doing the job. Previously, when we've seen large amounts of protests, they sometimes have been co-opted. Of course, I talk about like um, uh, you know March 14 versus March uh, March 8th. Okay, so that like the even despite the fact that you know Lebanon's previous large large protest was ethnic in a in a in a, in a very very important component, and I think that like there's also a pathology about this as well that's very important in comparison to Northern Ireland. And, and people have heard me speak and compare these two countries will also sort of be bored about making this point and the fact that Lebanon exists in a strategic hub and Northern Ireland in a strategic backwater. The two major states that border Northern Ireland are, are liberal democracies who, at least since 1985, have been fairly on the same page in terms of how... Uh, they, they, and how they will communicate their politics to Northern Ireland. Whereas regionally, we do not see the same thing in, in Lebanon, where it has been uh, the, the political history of those actors to play on the 
on the, the capital of the regional donors or benefactors to be able to at least try and create some leg up in the consociational power share system. And it behoves me at that point to sort of mention that non-sectarianism, depending on how we, like I'm going to throw in a very, very important and uh, controversial dynamic, has been existent in Lebanon. Previously, we talked about like the 18 recognized sex in Lebanon and talk of like a potential 19th previous prior to the Lebanese civil war of those who didn't identify as a sect. We had like parliamentary blocs in Lebanon that were technically non-sectarian, but still attached to those regional actors who acted most often in a sectarian manner, including of which the uh, SFNP were a, a key example or those parties who are linked to Arab nationalism while in their ostensibly were not um, sectarian, were absolutely operating in a manner that was instrumentalizing ethnic difference in Lebanon. So what's really important, and Theodore Hahn pointed out this, the fact that, you know, um, in his work, which is the Lebanese Civil War, of course, uh, it was a conflation of different uh, different issues that, that, that created the Civil War. But what happened at the end was a concept of like a Lebanese identity, which hadn't previous, which had been previously one of the key points of contention, emerged after the, the Lebanese Civil War. So, and I think that what we saw in Fauda was that at least despite the fact that we can talk about like the messiness of the political programs that have been introduced, the, the discussions, we moved, we do this necessary uh, threshing of the politics, which is like moving towards a pro-sectarianism, which is understanding that it's not just simply about, um, uh, in many cases in Lebanese political actors, a granting by your birthright that you can now lead the sect, but it's actually about who can like promote a political program. And I think that that is, you know, a positive that I will seek to hold on to because I, I'm not ready to give up on hope, um, <laughs> on, on political hope, but especially as we move into sort of the more dicey sort of political aspects uh, 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 post, uh, post-Aura. And I will say that one thing with the alliance is that, you know, they were born from a middle-class, rather unionist backgrounded sort of um, uh, sort of constituency, right? But prim- primarily based on the fact that they wanted to um, find a middle ground or support peace between two diametric poles. And it took a long time in the post-peace or the post-conflict uh, region to actually gain enough political capital to which they sort of like, a, a political project has emerged. And of course, as, as John pointed out, uh, the actual NI Life and Time survey has shown like there's a you know there's a closely tethered link towards the rise of the Northern Irish identity and the uh, and the rise of uh, of the alliances of the <laughs> You weren't wrong. You are revved up there, Drew. But thank you. It's really interesting. And I'm uh, I'm reminded of all the cartoons that came out of the region after the Brexit referendum um, and all of the populism and the mess that uh, that came out talking about how people weren't understanding what was going on and how democracy was needed to be imported to, to the UK and, uh, and, and also to the US as well, of course. But that point about the, the emergence of alliance compared to the emergence of this block is really interesting. Um, maybe something to, to pick up on another time, perhaps. But AK, I can sense that you're also being revved up. So please. Yes. So I think an important question to to raise when comparing Lebanon to Northern Ireland is why does Lebanon not have an equivalent of the Alliance Party? Is that because they are not able to form one or is that because they ultimately don't want to form one? Now I'm talking about activists and protesters in Lebanon. So I've been been doing research on Lebanon for the past about seven years and and one of the questions I've asked uh, Lebanese activists uh, mobilizing against the sectarian system is what what kind of system would you ultimately like to have? Uh, how would you like to to see Lebanese politics change? What is what just is your end destination? And one one of the answers I, I frequently get when I ask this question is that they would like to see a political system which is marked by ideological diversity. So they would actually like to compete with their co-anti-sectarians in elections, uh, liberals against socialists 
this is the kind of, of system that many of the activists I speak to want to to have. So, so they don't necessarily want to have an alliance party. So when we're talking about the lack of organization, we're not talking about an inability to form one joint anti-sectarian party in Lebanon. We're talking about the inability to form party organiz- organizations that represent different versions of anti-sectarianism, a socialist one, a more liberal economic one, uh, and an intersectional one, uh, more say, traditional uh, uh, values-based um, anti-sectarian actors. So I think that's important to, to keep in mind, that the end destination um, or the, the ideals for, for these uh, activists that are trying to mobilize in Lebanon now is, is different, perhaps, from, from, from the ones in, in, uh, in Northern Ireland. For sure. Ibrahim, with a different hat on, um, if I may, can I ask, um, referring to this different hat, what is your take on what AK is just saying as someone who's been involved in in political discussions and political activity more formally than just as a scholar and an activist? I think this is a, the very like the big the biggest dilemma for me, the one million dollar question. Um, why is it so hard? Not just in Lebanon, I'm, I'm thinking also the Arab Spring in general, despite the differences in political system. First, why does it? Why is the question of polit- establishing political party not an urgent and pressing question? And secondly, why, even when it is for some people, they have failed? Because I mean, I I, I can I, I can think a few examples of political figures or aspiring elite, as some literature would like to call them, that have tried in Lebanon and elsewhere to establish political party, and then always. This is the first, and it's a very shallow answer, of course, the first thing I can think of also from my own experience, is that people in Lebanon and in other places in the region do not believe that they are able or they have enough agency to take power. And therefore, those of them who are sensible about the limits of their political activity resort to the kind of demand-based movements or protest movements, and therefore they demand from the regime things but they don't see an ability or they don't internalize their own agency in the sense of acquiring power. Um, And you see this dilemma becoming much more pressing in Lebanon now because you have 13 MPs in parliament, but they don't have a political program to take power. Despite the fact that they speak a very radical narrative in the sense that they say this political system, including Nabi Birri himself, who's the head of parliament, is a criminal system. So how do you exist within a system without being a political party, while saying you're the opposition. So you don't want power, but at the same time, you say that this specific kind of power is criminal. So what is this kind of politics? And this is the big question for you. This is the one million dollar question. And, and from my own experience, it's, it's baffling, and it involves a lot of contradictions. Um, and what I'm trying to say at the end is, this is a regional problem, not just a problem of Lebanon. The question of how do you capitalize on your agency? What are the limits? of your agency in a region that is heavily understood or even imagined to be the product of geopolitical powers and international intervention. So how do you reimagine how to acquire power? How do you believe that you have the capacity to do so? One of my PhD supervisors very, very early on in the process um, somewhat dismissively said, all PhD students go through the phase of thinking the world is about structure and agency and then quickly get rid of it. And yet, It strikes me that's exactly what we're dealing with here. These questions of different levels of structure and agency and the extent to which individuals, groups, blocks, parties, movements, et cetera, et cetera, are able to to exert agency in the face of increasingly powerful structures. Um, With that in mind then, does anyone have an answer to become a millionaire? Or win a Nobel Prize? The academics. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's true. More speed, yeah. uh, become millionaires in the academics. Um, you know, Simon, what you just said sort of spoke very close to my heart. We go into it as a, as a constructivist from my personal point of view, and I'm just trying to see agencies and structure. Um, I think that there is one very, Im- again, I'd like to point out one very important point is that. Um, in post-war Northern Ireland, elites weren't under direct threat of death. Um, we saw, you know, unfortunately in 2005 that Lebanon, some some of which you would have hoped um, would have been maybe not political actors themselves, but um, thought leaders in terms of creating 
um, non-ethnic politics. I'm thinking of the likes of Samia Kassir and like others who who would have likely been very important figures in that and then sort of that post sort of post conflict and not only post conflict but also post independence independent Lebanon. Uh, I think that under those structures, and I really don't want to continue to make excuses because I do know that you've just asked for uh, solutions, and I think that we're in a time where we can sort of start to provide those, um, sans the regional sort of geopolitical activity. But the fact is, is that we're going to have to accept that there is going to be like a large level of messiness going forward. There is going to have to be some of the political actors uh, in the independent or non-sectarian bloc are going to have to fail. Um, and are quite likely to fail. One aspect, and I really think that it's crucial, as AK pointed out, to creating sort of generations worth of good political action is uh, is political education in Lebanon. And I hope that Taura actually marks the point when people actually realize that it's not just about the Zayim or, or the leaders within communities that are preordained to lead them, but actually about like those who can be- put forward the best political program. Because my sort of fear is that in the in the onslaught of the presidential like hang up that we're likely to have um the 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 parliamentary hang up because we're still like we're still thrust on the on the will of Nabil Medidi to put on reform issues into Parliament. We're going to get hang-ups, and then the, the the Lebanese public might say, "Well, we tried the um, we tried the the non-sectarian actors, and nothing got done." So rather than actually sort of the reality or the solution for me is trying to create those um, real important grassroots continued conversations about uh, Democrat democratic health and how we move towards that in real time, in parallel with all the difficulties that are going likely going to be going on. One of the things that has struck me listening to all of this, and I'm in no way an expert on Northern Ireland, but I'm curious to hear what, what you've got to say on this, John, that Lebanon has this um, very, very strong set of social protests that fall into the camp of um, the sort of the non-anti-post-trans, et cetera, et cetera, movements, right? But it struggles to exert that or to translate that into a particularly strong political bloc. Conversely, Northern Ireland, there's a strong political bloc, the Alliance Party, but not necessarily the same social um, capital amongst the youth, amongst civil society groups, perhaps. Um, I wonder why you think that is and as we're approaching marching season how does all this play out in a in a time of increasingly heightened emotions um really interesting question Tim. i'm not exactly sure that i'm qualified to answer all of them but certainly we've seen in northern ireland a strong centrist political movement in terms of the Alliance Party, which we've mentioned before is, um, you know, it's liberal, it's not a radical party, it's not looking to overthrow the sort of power sharing system or to implement any sort of radical kind of change to the system. Um, but, you know, as I keep kind of coming back to it, there isn't sort of a coercive sort of framework here in Northern Ireland to, you know, close down the space for parties like the Alliance, you know, they're kind of free to sort of mobilize with no sort of interference in the electoral system. There isn't sort of patronage sort of politics in the same way we see in Lebanon, you know, there isn't sort of levels of corruption, which kind of Drew sort of mentioned earlier. You, you know, the kind of external sort of framework is very benevolent for uh, kind of stability here. You know, the US, the EU, you know, UK, Republic of Ireland, will put as much as possible, sort of our good offices, well, discounting the Tory party at the moment, towards sort of maintaining sort of stability here in Northern Ireland. So, you know, if non-sectarian politics can't flourish in Northern Ireland, it's not going to flourish anywhere on the whole. You know, then when we look at Lebanon, you know, all of those kind of factors are missing, you know. Everything is kind of showing that Lebanon is actually becoming more sort of Authoritarian, you know, in terms of all the measures which kind of judge this, you know, in relationship to sort of ethno sectarian parties manipulating the electoral system, corruption, the use of kind of clientelism to basically sort of buy votes, you, you know, 
we're all a sort of hybrid sort of actors who are in between state, non-state, militias, all of these kind of types of things. You know, so it just isn't a sort of conducive sort of framework for non-sectarian politics to really sort of flourish in Lebanon. And for all of us kind of talk about strategies are going to make a difference. Yeah, I understand kind of strategies are important. Social movements, social movements can bring about kind of change. We're progressive actors, you know, but when you're in a hostile kind of framework or environment, the sort of, you know, the possibilities for actually, you know, coming up with some sort of strategic plan to actually change the system is highly kind of delimiting. So, you know, I, I, I don't think it's a question of kind of strategy for protest movements in Lebanon. It's this kind of level of coercion which has been used to basically destroy opposition parties. Um, it, it's so sort of vehement that it's almost impossible to think that Lebanese opposition parties are going to make any sort of considerable change in the short to medium term. And it's not as if this is a movement which has just suddenly emerged over the last couple of years. You know, sectarian parties and movements have been mobilizing at least since 2005, 2006, but more kind of recently since 2011. They tried to take back parliament. You think there's a lot of time to sort of work out the kinks and how to sort of mobilize. And, you know, maybe it's a very sort of depressing sort of story, which I'm suggesting here, but um, I, I just can't see how these kind of parties are ever going to sort of really sort of break through when the logic of a system is so sort of coercive and violent. Sorry, guys. Not particularly bleak there, John. Um... Let's all go home. Yeah. <laughs> okay, please. And then I'm conscious that we've been going for close to an hour. So um, we'll hear from you, okay? And then I'll, I'll give everyone a chance to, to have some final observations, very brief observations before uh, wrapping this up. Yeah. John, I just noted you mentioned Take Back Parliament. And I think perhaps that's a good um, note to make, actually, when we're talking about anti sectarian policy from Lebanon today. So I was interviewing uh, candidates from from Take Back Parliament uh, some some five years ago. So Take Back Parliament was uh, one of the first actually attempts of establishing an independent uh, party in Lebanon that was supposed to compete in elections that then got cancelled. And this party was facing a really really tough um, struggle uh, to just actually convince voters that there was something that was independent of the sectarian parties. I mean, that was their struggle in the beginning. Not to organize, it was also to organize, but that sort of came second. But the main barrier, um, and, and this, this comes from uh, activists I've interviewed from this party, was really to convince people that they could trust a political actor that claimed not to represent any of the sectarian parties. They simply did not believe that this was possible in Lebanon. Today, if we uh, fast forward to, to 2022, this debate is is not as present anymore. This is not the main challenge anymore to convince voters that there is something called independent. Now voters know, and, and you can hear that in the public debate in Lebanon, there is a thing now called independent in Lebanon. So th this is perhaps a good picture of how things have moved uh, in the country from not having any idea of what, what, what is outside sectarianism to at least having an idea that something can be outside of sectarianism. So perhaps over the next years, we will see uh, some clearer visions of, so how do these independent actors look like? How can we distinguish between different forms of independent actors that can challenge the sectarian system? And that reminds me of conversations that you and I were having, Ibrahim, um, a while ago about the importance of the imagination and reimagining um, the way in which politics plays out, the way in which religion plays out, the way in which formal politics interacts with informal politics, state, society, etc., etc. So, um, yeah, thank you for, for raising that, AK. Ibrahim, I'll come to you first then. A closing statement, sharing any observations that you may have, have gleaned from this absolutely fascinating discussion. So thank you. Yeah, thanks. Um, AK, you brought me back for years because my first political participation was in Take Back Parliament. That was the first engagement with politics in Lebanon. I just wanted to clarify, it was not a political party. We were just a bunch of, it was an electoral campaign. Yeah, we were a bunch of mostly feminist activists that came together on the feminist organization called Nashawiya. And I have to give credit to Nadine Mawad, the 
for being one of the early founders of feminist organizations in Lebanon, and she was the one behind this Take Back Parliament initiative. But yeah, I think in terms of the, now that we talk about Take Back Parliament, I think my, my last comments would be just thinking about how quickly, so giving credit to the activists in Lebanon, how quick, quickly this opposition to the system has evolved. Um, 10 years is not a lot of time. Uh, and in, in the context of all the extra institutional, as John called them, um, impediments to meaningful, healthy political participation in Lebanon, it is really an achievement to arrive now at much more mature and significant political participation. But having said that, I think uh, all the cynicism that John eloquently <laughs> shared is very true because uh, there's also a layer of violence that exists in Lebanon that does not necessarily exist in the same scale elsewhere, particularly in Northern Ireland. You know, I mean, Drew mentioned Samir Asir as an example, and I immediately thought about every time we have a sensible political figure that tries in some way or another to inspire an alternative vision of Lebanon, violence plays a part and in terms of direct assassination as well. And, and the last thing I'm, I'm thinking of um, in, in terms of this conversation is the, the question of the nature of the state. Uh, when did the state emerge and how did it emerge? And uh, it's very different in Lebanon to Northern Ireland. We're in the midst of complete state erosion in Lebanon. This has implications on the power that sectarian parties have on people's livelihood and the kind of violence that is sanctioned in everyday life. So, yeah, just wanted to... And on a balanced note of pessimism, but also giving credit to the kind of opposition that has evolved over a very short period of time in Lebanon. Thanks, Ibrahim. And yeah, we could have spent another hour talking about the state itself and the comparisons mm -hmm. and the, the broader structural factors emerging from the different types of state at play. Um, Drew, please, final observation. Yeah. Yeah, I'll try and keep it uh, as short as possible. But again, building on on fascinating conversation, I thank everyone for 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 pitching in because I think we could go on for several hours. And I think it's not it's definitely not a small thing to avoid the fact that there has been a lot of grassroots non ethnic mobilization in Lebanon and quite a lot of successful and a history of successful grassroots non ethnic mobilization. You can look at like the um, uh, the non-sectarian club in AUB, or you can look at like the the, the recent sort of past year successes of um, of the of university uh, um, associations that have sought to try and create some of those grassroots um, those grassroots mobilizations. And I think that a large amount of politics um, and and you know, of course, Ibrahim mentioned that whenever we have a sensible leader at a national level who creates. You, who talks about reconciliation or who can create a significant political program. You know, unfortunately, my mind goes to Lachman Slim and other people who are eliminated from the Lebanese political fauna whenever they are creating cross-ethnic bridges. And unfortunately, that remains a dynamic both in Lebanon and Northern Ireland that is also a threat. Because despite the fact that... Um, all Northern Ireland's advantages in terms of uh, not dealing with violence, we still have an inherent threat of violence. The fact is that we still have an inherent threat of, and this is why, you know, consociations or power sharings are often called stableocracies because we're just happy with not being in a violent context. And therefore, any backslide towards any of those protected issues um, might actually instigate or re-cause re uh, or or cause conflict yet again. And I think that what happens is, um, certainly in Northern Ireland, that I think that, you know, when we try to look at it, we're in a much, we're much closer, have moved much more closely to the idea of a reunification than I felt we'd see within this decade. Mostly, I believe, that's because of the issues of Brexit, uh, a complete calamity of a government in, in, the, in Westminster, and very effective, stable leadership within, not, within the different parties in Northern Ireland that have managed to take advantage. So it's a lot of policymaking or that reimagining process has to happen on the crest of a wave around larger political and regional issues. And Lebanon has unfortunately been denied those actors through violence. 
Um, and unfortunately, there might not be a case of, of being able to solve that violence and threat, direct threat to those poten- potential actors. But I am heartened by the fact that at the grassroots level, we do see like growing emergence and strength of these of these mobilizations. So that's something to take heart in. And I will say that you know it's very very clear that um, and to further my and my last point, which is um, it's very very clear. The, the political reaction that established ethnic actors have towards normalizations of, of relations between communities. So the fact is that often we say we have more peace lines in Northern Ireland post-conflict than we did that were erected during our conflict. The fact is that all the indicators of, of integrated schooling and um, shared uh, housing and shared areas are are not in any way moving towards their stated uh, Good Friday Agreement and Peace Agreement goals. So these kinds of uh, mobilizations are really where we can try and bulletproof, um, unfortunately, in reality, not, not intended, bulletproof the, the, the effect of political mobilization moving, in, moving forward by protecting grassroots and making sure that people can actually create cross-bridge, uh, cross-ethnic uh, mobilizations at, at the ground level and take it on. Thank you, Drew. Um, an interesting and perhaps liberal interpretation of brief, but we'll let you off. AK. Yes, I just want to say very briefly, thank you for a very inspiring conversation, which I hope we will resume soon, because I have lots of questions to ask you as well. Uh, but thank you so much for giving me the chance to to participate. I look forward to, to keep discussing these things. Thank you, AK. Um, valuable input, as always. Last, but by no means least, John. Um, yeah. Um, I think I should apologise for being such a downer earlier, for being so cynical and dismissive, which is definitely not my atten- intention. You know, I want to be optimistic and say, actually, you know, non-sectarian parties and groups in Lebanon have made a significant breakthrough despite severe constraints and obstacles, you know, coercive and otherwise institutional discursive and so on. You know, the fact that a million people can actually get onto the streets and voice opposition to an ethno-sectarian power sharing system, you know, carve up and corruption, all of these kind of types of things is really important. And, you know, it does sort of merit support. And I guess one of the big questions is, you know, what a sort of change of Lebanon's sort of corporate power sharing system incentivize non-sectarian parties, you know, to maybe make more of a kind of breakthrough. Um, I'm not entirely sure that sort of power sharing is the big institutional obstacle, which is made out to be. I, I still really think it's about these sort of authoritarian sort of, you know, practices which are going on, which really sort of delimit space. And I think that's where the concentration should be at the moment about dealing with corruption, um, you know, clientelism, about manipulation of the electoral system, about independent media and all of these kind of types of things. I think that's where more gains possibly could be made rather than um, changing the architecture of a power sharing system, which I don't think is really going to make any significant difference. Oh, wow, I'm being cynical again. Sorry. I think we've discovered your default position if we didn't have suspicions of it already. So I guess I have the final word and that's... Um, I would like to use to say a huge thank you to all four of you, to Ibrahim Halawi, Drew Mikhail, A.K. Roon and John Nagel. It's been absolutely fantastic listening to you reflect on these um, really challenging, complex issues. And there's so much more that we could we could have teased out. This hour has flown by, but it's been a real pleasure. So a huge thank you to all of you. And as always, a huge thank you to you for listening really really appreciated do like follow subscribe etc 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 we do very much appreciate it until next time